n times unity part 9 reaching for unity. So tonight we're going to be talking about the things that we're supposed to do actually to promote unity in uh, the church, in our own world, first in our heart, in our families, in our churches, and then really as an example to Israel. Like Israel is the focal point of the unity that the Bible teaches because God wants a united family. He doesn't want a united church in Israel. He actually wants the church grafted into the root, just like it says in Romans 11. So we're going to start, actually, looking at page four of the notes. We're going to start um, on page one of the notes, and there's not a verse. Okay, so, <laughs> item one, the need for prophecy. So David, the man after God's heart, required the 24-7 worship movement, this is what we were talking about last time we were together, in Israel, that it be specifically musical and prophetic. So David is the guy after God's own heart. David is the king. Israel, even to this day, is looking for a king like David to come and be their Messiah. So it's really important, actually, that we put David, Jerusalem, the spirit, what David did, the throne that Jesus is going to sit on, all the things we've been talking about for the last eight weeks, all kind of into the mix when we think about unity, okay? So David, he was, he required this 24-7 prayer worship movement in Israel, let it be musical and prophetic. David organized, this is obviously just reminding us of what we talked about last week, he organized 24,000 musicians, singers, and gatekeepers, and the order was to prophesy to music with music, and that's all in First Chronicles 25. This wasn't just a good idea that David had. God showed David all this as a divine design, and I didn't give you the passages this time because we actually read these last time. David was fully committed. Now, if you, you probably don't know this, but these are the same notes that we had last week, except for instead of the spirit of prophecy, it was focusing on music. So last, last time we were together, so David was completely committed to the musical nature of God's plan. He was also completely committed to the prophetic nature of God's plan. So last time we were together, we can look at why music. Tonight, we're going to be looking at why prophecy. Really important. The two, they are equally important because God's government is musical. It's also prophetic. And so that term prophetic, it throws a lot of people. Some people think when they hear the word prophetic that I'm just talking about Elijah, you know, declaring something's going to happen in the future, or Isaiah declaring something's going to happen in the future. That's not what I'm talking about when I say prophetic. When I say prophetic, I mean hearing something directly from God and then in faith, believing it and trying to do it. That's the prophetic that I'm talking about. Okay, we'll, we'll see that in the verses tonight. Okay, so this, um, David was fully committed to the prophetic nature of God's plan for Israel to usher in an eternal kingdom for God. So Israel, when you look at the nation of Israel, even now, on, you know, in the geography that they live in, that is the political nation of Israel, when you look at Israel, what you have to see is this is a conduit. This is a, a priesthood, a, a connection point to God. God chose Abraham, and he, out of Abraham, grew a nation of priests to connect the rest of the world to God. And so when you got saved, when you became a follower of Jesus, you became a follower of a Jewish man. And Jesus, is a, he's got a Jewish body, and you became a part of a Jewish man's body. And it's only in the confusion of modern church that we don't recognize this entire thing as all about Israel. It's like Israel's not like, oh, that's kind of a cool side program the church has. Or, yeah, someday, you know, the Bible says a lot about Israel. God's going to do something with that. When we got saved, somebody should have taught us all of our time, all of our money, all of our dreams. They should start to get put on the city of Jerusalem, not in the flesh, though, not in a way that makes sense to us. 
led by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and that's really the spirit of prophecy. Okay, so let's read. Whoever's got number one, let's read First Chronicles 23, 25 to 26. For David said, The Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people, that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever. And also to the Levites, they shall no longer carry the tabernacle or any of the articles for its service. Now this, when, when David said this, I just want to, I want to look at this for just a second. So this is 1 Chronicles 23. This is actually describing some of the massive changes David made once the city of Jerusalem was in Israel's hands and changed from the, the city of Jabus into the city of Jerusalem. David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, put it in the tabernacle of David, in the tent. And then he made some of the most radical changes to Israel. Like, it should be like somebody being in the Catholic Church, like a cardinal in the Catholic Church, being like, okay, you know what, we're done with the Pope thing. We're going to start doing this thing. And, you know, then we're going we're gonna to actually change all of your roles, bishops. You're going to actually start to do this now. It'd be, it'd be that radical, even more radical. Because Israel was very set on following the Mosaic Law and doing the, the things exactly the way Moses had prescribed. And they've been doing it for thousands of years. So even the Catholic Church is a couple thousand years old. When By the time David came and did this, like there was established tradition, and this was very radical for him to say, okay, the Levites are going to do something different. So let's look at this, this little, these two verses one more time. For David said, The Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people, that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever. Now, for you, that sounds like, duh, that's where Israel's supposed to live is Jerusalem. But this was a brand new idea when David said this. This was like, okay, guys, we've, we've made it. We're here. Like, it'd be like saying to all those people that came through the Red Sea with Moses, okay, the wandering is over. We're home. But David was the only one that knew this. David was the only one that knew this prophetically. So it'd be like, can you imagine? Like, somebody just telling the whole church in America right now, hey, everybody's been doing it wrong. And or, or at this point, we got to change. Not even that they were doing it wrong. At this point, everything is going to change. Yeah. Did the sacrificial system continue though through the tabernacle too? Did they still sacrifice on their normal? Yeah, there were sacrifices that were happening somewhere else, and then it would eventually move to the Temple Mount. So when the temple was established, then the sacrifices were moved to the and, temple. And that's where also this was the the the, the prayer room. The yes, but this is before all that. So this okay. is this is the initiation of that process of bringing. All the things that the Levites did, all the things that the sons of Aaron did, to a complete change, a radical change. So the fact that he even moved the worship location was, I mean, yeah. so far outside of the box that he moved this Ark of the Covenant, supposed to be in the Holy of Holies, yeah. in a very specific tent, and he moved it into a tent. He threw up. And then he said, guys, we're home. Israel, this God's given Israel, rest his people, that they could dwell here in this city that I just turned from Jabus into Jerusalem. And then he said, and also to the Levites. Now, the Levites had been around since Levi, like literally de generation after generation. All right, you guys are no longer going to carry the tabernacle around or any articles for its service. That was their main job. Their main job was to move the tent. And he was saying, we're not going to do that anymore. This is all going to change now. So when you look at this, you have to understand, David recognized a prophetic fulfillment that Deuteronomy, remember that Deuteronomy passage that I read to you guys a few times where it said, when I've given you victory over all your enemies, then I'm going to show you the place where I want to be worshipped. David was saying, I not only believe that prophecy, I'm acting on it. Now, it wasn't like he got a bunch of people that came from heaven and were like, okay, Israel, listen to David. He just, he was a brand new king over united Israel. Had, yes, gotten some victory, but he also had lived in caves and in and running from town to town for 20 years. Like, this was radical, radical faith. 
He believed the prophecy. He told Israel this is what it was. And then he started to act on it because he had been given anointing and authority to do it. So when he became king, he immediately started to be a prophetic king. He was committed to the spirit of prophecy. So this was a massive statement on the part of David. He declared the search for the dwelling place of God was over, reassigned the duties of the Levites. He not only believed the prophecy, he believed he had fulfilled it. He then acted on it and taught Israel to start prophesying. So one of the first things that David did is he taught the people of Israel to start prophesying in the tabernacle of David. Now you have to remember, this is before Jesus came, paid the price for sin, gave up his life on a cross, came back and breathed the spirit on people. He was teaching unspirit-filled people how to prophesy. This is radical. Like He was uh, an entire dispensation ahead of anywhere he should have been, according to all of the things in the Bible. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. He believed these things, and he acted on them. And to this day, Israel longs for this king, to this day, because he was a man after God's own heart. So we have to be a people that actually reach for something that God is doing. Like God actually wants to do something next with the church right now. And it'd be very tempting to just be caught up in the same old routines and the same old methods and the same old pining for the same old things. But we have to know what the spirit of prophecy is saying, what, what the prophetic promises are for the church. That's actually why we're doing this class, because there's a unity that's coming that's unlike anything the earth has ever seen. It's not like the 70s charismatic revival. It's not like Brownsville. It's not like, you know, Toronto. It's something entirely new that has got to be spirit-led, and it's actually got to be believed by people seen, recognized, discerned, and then acted on and taught to other people. This is this is what the bride is going to do. Okay, So what I'm describing to you is the role of the bride. The bride's going to mostly do the teaching, the teaching and the dispensing of it through what's called the millennial reign of Jesus. David was really, he had changed, he had ushered in a new reign, like a new, a new reality. Okay, And God called it faith. So you are grafted into Israel. When you got saved according to Romans 11, there was room made for you by Israel's rejection of Jesus, and you were grafted to that same root. Don't be proud, remember, don't be boasters. Remember, there was space made for you, and if Israel's rejection was salvation for the Gentiles, Israel's acceptance is even more glorious. It's even more life, okay? So that means some really practical things. One of the practical things it means is that what David said here, the Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever. He was prophetically talking about you. You see, if you're grafted into Israel and David isn't lying and he's actually anointed by the Spirit and making a declaration, hey, I found a place. This is the dwelling place of the Lord right here. He said it for you too. That means that our main life should be lived in Jerusalem, even though we don't live there. And if you look, and this is kind of what we were talking about last time when we were together, Daniel, when Daniel was taken captive to Babylon, he was still living his life in Jerusalem. He Three times a day, he went up to his upper room, looked at Jerusalem, and prayed to be back in that place. This is what God's actually calling us to do. We've spent a few weeks kind of fleshing this out. But, you know, it's important to have a heart for Israel, which you're not born with. It's not like some good people really care about Israel, and then the rest of us have to, like, just kind of limp along until then. We're actually supposed to be crying out to become one with Jesus, and Jesus' eyes are on the city. So you're grafting to Israel. Your prophetic destiny is to dwell in Jerusalem forever. Now, God, he didn't simply wave his hand and give rest to Israel. So when you look at this passage, 1 Chronicles 23, the Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever. Were they resting and were they dwelling? <clears throat> no. They, in fact, people fought David about Jerusalem for decades after this. Like, there was not rest. 
he was making a prophetic statement. He was inviting people into this reality. Now, 24,000 singers, musicians, and gatekeepers, they, he organized them to enter into this rest. But there were still a whole lot of people that didn't connect with the rest. There were kings, successions of kings after that, that rejected that rest and just wanted to get stuff done. They wanted to make good kingdoms for themselves. They wanted to make a good kingdom for their people. They did it lawlessly. They went up to the high places. They got desperate. They sacrificed to idols. They burned kids in the Valley of Hinnom. Like, they did all kinds of crazy things. Lonnie just kind of took a step back. Yeah, Israelites worshipped Molech and Jehovah at the same time because they were desperate. Like, they, their governments were falling apart. They ran out of food sometimes. There were droughts. There were all kinds of stuff that happened. And they did not want to enter into this rest that David had prophetically declared. And they had a whole system of government set up to help Israel enter into this rest. But a ton of people just didn't want to. Okay, So God didn't just wave his hand and give rest to Israel. He's not going to do that for you either. He's never going to just wave his hand and give you rest. If you think that will happen, you will end up in hell. Very unrest, very restless. So you actually have to enter into the rest. You have to make choices to step into the rest of the Lord. Okay. Um, he invited them into a prophetic rest. That's why David taught Israel to prophesy. It, it, David actually spent time teaching people that had no idea what prophecy was to prophesy so they could enter into this rest. Everything of the flesh, so all everything you think, everything you feel, everything you want to do on your own, it's warring against this prophetic rest. So you can hear information. This is the danger. You can hear true things in the Bible. You can hear promises in this book. And you're like, I need some of these promises. I need to be free of addiction, or I need to be free of anxiety. You can hear all the promises and still never enter into the rest and actually start to try to do them in your own strength and not only confuse yourself, confuse a ton of people around you, and completely mask this rest, this, this tabernacle of rest. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not neutral. Our unwillingness to let the Spirit actually do the stuff that's promised in here it causes trouble for other people to go into this rest. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you won't go in, and you block the way for everybody else going in. But they had all kinds of rules and regulations to get people close to God. He's like, yeah, but it's like you're, you're putting a force field around the actual place of rest, and people are just bouncing off of it, and you won't go in. Like, nobody's going in. So we don't want to be a people like that. We don't want to get all these great ideas and then come up with our own good ideas about how to do this stuff. That's antichrist. That's evil. Okay, and that's actually divisive. That's the opposite of the unity that Jesus is talking about. So you can have a real surficial unity where everybody's like, yeah, we just love Jesus. We love all these promises. This is great. But nobody actually is willing to wait in the small, in the hard, in the difficult, in the faithful, like all the people we read about in here, and wait for God to do these things. They just have, they, they get excited, they get gathered, and they just want to go and build something. And that is the unity of Babylon. That's actually the opposite of the rest that he's talking about, okay? So, but everything in you is warring against this rest. You'll only get to it by repenting your way into it. Okay, so let's read number two, Hebrews 4, 1 to 2. Therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear least any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Do you see what he, he's saying? The exact same thing that I just said, which is they heard the promise, but they didn't mix it with faith. They actually heard the promise. They just didn't believe the only way that promise is going to come is by learning the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leads us in a way we wouldn't lead ourselves. 
He leads us in a way that doesn't make sense to the flesh. It's actually foolishness to the flesh, the things that he does. He, the Holy Spirit typically is in the small. It's typically, he's leading us into things that we would not celebrate as success. He's leading, I mean, look at Jesus. Jesus' ultimate success was alone on a cross, offering his life in a way that made no sense to anybody on the ground. Even the people that saw the miraculous things, they still were like, surely he was the son of God, yes. But there's really no testimony of like a ton of people being radically on fire for the leadership of Jesus in that moment. Right. It actually, it was very confusing to people for weeks after that. Even Mary and Mary and Salome going to the tomb, they were still like getting ready to bury <coughs> Jesus, not meet a resurrected Jesus. So this rest that we're talking about you can't just be like, hey, that makes sense. I'm going to go do that. It actually has to be something where you're, you have to recognize all the ways you don't rest into these promises, all the ways you're trying to make yourself righteous, <clears throat> make your family righteous, make your city righteous, make your church righteous, because Israel's been trying to make stuff righteous for thousands of years. And look at the state of Jerusalem right now. It's a mess. And the, the very most important place to her, she's not even legally allowed to pray at. Isn't that crazy? That's because she won't enter into the rest. When she enters into the rest, God's going to actually pour out heaven on the Temple Mount, and she will own it with him. Okay. Um, Hebrews 4, 9-13, which is just a little bit further in the same idea. Number three. Whoever's got number three? There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to rest, enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, for all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So can God see... The, the difference between where his spirit is trying to lead you and where your soul is saying no. How do you know? Just said it, right? That's actually what this is saying. So when he's talking about the rest, this is, he didn't change subject in verse 12. He's saying the reason that you don't enter into this rest is there's all kinds of these micro decisions happening in the inner level to not rest. And it actually takes the Holy Spirit to discern your thoughts and your intentions to get you to be diligent, now listen to the dichotomy of this, to be diligent to enter into the rest. So most people, they want to be diligent to enter into the unity, be diligent to enter into the church, be diligent to enter into the world and save the world, be diligent for a ton of things except for rest. But that's the, the diligence to enter the rest is the whole point of the crucifixion and the resurrection, the entire gospel. So you, if you're diligent for anything but the rest, you're actually operating in a kingdom counter to Jesus' kingdom. This is very difficult. If you really think about what this means, this means most of the things we've ever tried to do in the Lord, for the Lord, or with the Lord, we've mostly done compromise in trying, trying to do stuff. Very few people in, in history, in the history of the Bible, have entered into this rest. Where would you find the list of the people that have entered into this rest? There's one chapter in the Bible that lists a ton of them. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 gives us a litany of people who have entered into this rest. Actually, let's let's in our Bibles, let's just go to Hebrews 11, the end of it. The rest is where the power is of the Holy Spirit. When we enter into the rest, we can also then receive that power. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, now Hebrews 11 starts with, if you go to verse 1, it says, now what? Faith. Faith. Faith is the rest, okay? Faith is that rest. Now I want you to go all the way to the last um, three verses. Who will read for me Hebrews 11, 38 through 40? Actually, Hebrews 11, 37 through 40. Go ahead. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted. Now this is describing people at rest. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and in caves of the earth. And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided himself something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Okay, so they're resting. They're actually waiting for a promise. Now, it's not like, oh yeah, I waited five years for it. No. Did you wait through being stoned? Did you wait through being sawn in two? Did you wait through being tempted? Did you wait through a cross? Did you wait when you were completely cast out, destitute? This is the unity that the Bible's describing. Now, most of the church would reject this unity and be like, I want the other unity, like the unity with the great music. I want the unity that looks rich, that looks clean, that looks inviting to the world. And God's like, I'm not actually inviting the world into the church. I'm inviting people to come out of the world into a family that waits on God. Way different, way different. God will never accept the world into the church, ever. So the church actually has to be a witness of people that are resting in God because there are people in the world that know the smoke and the mirrors aren't real. That you can have the best smoke and the best mirrors, but you're still unsatisfied on the inside. That you can achieve the highest levels of greatness in the world and still be complete. I mean, look at the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, just for one small example. Two of the biggest role models on the planet for my generation, completely <laughs> depraved, like completely empty. The world doesn't want the church's smoke and mirrors inviting it to success. It already knows that the success isn't real. What the world is looking for is rest. It wants to find a place where people actually don't try to be everything that they want, where they're willing to just let God be God. And what that looks like is this. So these people, they're still waiting. They're still resting. Jesus himself is still resting for a kingdom. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, his rest, did it leave him not doing anything? No. Did he do a lot? Yes. How much did Jesus do? If we were to write books about everything Jesus did, how many libraries would it take? Too many. Take up the whole world according to John. He said, if I wrote everything Jesus did, even the world couldn't contain it. That's because Jesus was active before the Bible was written. So what we have to understand is that the resting of God is not inactivity. It's submission. It's humility. It's actually faith. So that, that this chapter starts with faith. This is the unity that we've been talking about for nine weeks. If you're not united to these people, you're not in the unity I'm talking about. So the unity I'm talking about is the unity of the martyrs. Okay. Actually, let's go one more place. Revelation 20. Revelation 20. And somebody go ahead and read for me verses 4, 5, and 6 of Revelation 20. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life 
and reign with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So this is the, this is the, this is talking about the bride or the, the witnesses or the martyrs. The martyrios, witness and martyr, that's the same word, martyrios. This is what this is talking about. So this is the, this is the only unity available to the church that partakes in the, in the rapture or the first resurrection. This is the only one. There's not like some, hey, where's the cool guy one? You know, the people that were just really attractive to the world, they lived really good lives, they didn't, you know, swear, they didn't drink, and they went to church a bunch. Where's that unity? And Jesus would be like, that unity is not real. That's a, a counterfeit. That's a it made sense to the flesh. That was a compromise unity. No, I'm looking for the sold everything, gave it to the poor, and came and followed me kind of unity. And that is rejected by the world. So it's actually hated by the worldly church, which is what we've been talking about several times. That's the letters to the seven churches is to talk people into this rest instead of the rest that's offered to the world by the end-time Babylon. The end-time Babylon is going to offer the world a rest that is, hey, if we could just all get together, get some momentum on this thing, and start doing what's right, we'll all be able to relax. Like, there's a bunch of pain in this part of the world, there's a bunch of pain in this reality of creation. You know, the environment needs help, and these poor people need help. If we could just get it together, let us, get, let us build a tower whose top is never. Let us do what God wants done. And that's not a rest. That's actually a, a soul push from the people of the earth to say, we don't need God to get all these promises. Do you see what I'm saying? We can do it ourselves. We can do it ourselves. Okay, now, H, our flesh, our, our mind, will, and emotions, or our soul is the way that it just said it in this, in this passage above us. So when he says, I'm a discerner of the difference between soul and spirit, that's what the sharp two-edged sword does, is it finds out where you won't go into this rest, even though you believe the promises, you got all the same words as people entering into the rest. You use the same Bible, like Satan uses the same Bible as Jesus when he's tempting him to look for. You can use the same Bible, same words, same music, but not be entering into the rest. You can actually just want God to save the world instead of save you out of the world. Okay, so our flesh or our soul, it wars against this rest, which is to war against unity, true unity. But there is a false unity. There's a unity of the tears. So our good ideas and our strength spent on our good ideas is literally what's delaying the return of Jesus. Jesus actually says through Peter that we can hasten the day of his return. And that's the way we hasten it is by entering into the rest. He's just waiting for the bride to decide, I want to put everything on what Jesus is going to do. That's actually the oil that drips to the ten water to the five wise bridesmaids is enough oil for today. I, I'm not going to actually scurry my little tail off trying to get enough oil before Jesus comes back. I'm actually going to find out I could I never could get enough oil to make it through this time of tribulation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to let Jesus be enough for me today. I'm going to enter into this rest. I'm going to actually see today's a good day. God made the day. It doesn't matter what trouble comes my way. It doesn't matter what great victory happens. Either way, it's a day Jesus made. The victory is going to pass. The trouble is going to pass. In the end, I want to be resting in the Lord. I want to, It's the, the Shulamite leaning on her beloved when she comes up out of the wilderness in the Song of Songs. Okay? So, but we have tons of good ideas about how to make this thing happen. And if you've ever seen God start to put a little momentum on something at church, what's one of the first things that happens when God starts to give us a little bit of momentum? We start to think of all the other things we can do with this momentum. Mm. It's, a, it's an off-ramp to the rest. We're actually supposed to be like, hey, if he did that, what else will he do if I wait on him and I just ask and receive? Okay. So, but we have to be diligent. So if you go back to that uh, number three, uh, Hebrews 4, 9 to 11, 
be diligent to enter the rest. We're actually supposed to spend most of our energy getting into the rest because your being is fighting this rest. You're supposed to be at war. It's actually a violence. John the Baptist was he took the kingdom by violence, but the violence wasn't against the Pharisees. The violence wasn't against the dumb Israelites who didn't get it. The violence was against himself. He actually brought his thoughts captive. He brought his desires, his impatience captive. He brought his opportunities. He was a, you know, a son of Zechariah. He was in the priestly family. He could have had a great position in Jerusalem. He actually gave that captive to the Lord. He like was like, no, that's not the rest. I want the rest. And he did something radically weird. I mean, John the Baptist was like David. He did something nobody had ever heard of before. There's nothing in the Bible about baptism before that. Esther was immersed and stuff, but that's you have to make a, you know, draw a line to the baptisms, to the immersions that Esther went through. It was radical what John did, but he was entering into a rest, and God was telling him stuff, and he just did it. And God brought him people and prepared the way for Jesus. Like, because John was resting, though. Not because John, John wasn't a hard worker. John was humble, and he did what God told him to do. And it was weird, and a lot of people didn't like him for it, but Jesus approved of John and actually got baptized by him. So we must be diligent, but not diligent to do so. Rather diligent to ask and then wait to receive. This is very difficult. Otherwise, what happens is our self-righteousness is warring against the true righteousness, which is much more powerful to unite creation. Our self-righteousness can only unite little pockets of creation. The true righteousness of Jesus is guaranteed to unite all of creation. So we might be able to get, let's say we can get 50,000 people to show up at a stadium and cry out, we love Jesus. That would be infinitesimal compared to the unity Jesus requires from the earth. He actually wants lions to stop eating people. He wants a little child to be able to pet a cobra and have the cobra have so much glory on it. It's like, I don't want to eat the kid. He's actually looking for a unity that creates an atmosphere where the plants start to produce fruit every month. That's how they're actually made to produce fruit every month. He's, he wants unity to the point where the atmosphere of the earth is pleasant and bountiful for every single creature on it to the point where they don't have to kill each other to get what they need. You see what I'm saying? So us getting 50,000 people in the stadium, he'd be like, you know, that's really immature and fleshy. I appreciate your, you know, your concern, but I actually have a plan to unite everything in heaven and the earth and under the earth together in one in, in myself. Okay, that's Jesus' role. That's actually why he went to a cross. So it's Jesus' prophetic destiny to unite everything. Earth and heaven, that means the environment, including your body. Your body actually is broken. It's, it's, it fights itself. It's, it's in division, and he's not okay with that. The health of all living beings in animals and man, that's clearly in the Bible. Men and angels, he wants to unite men and angels. God and man, all people, so all genders, he wants unity. There's going to there's gonna be no difference in the way that women are treated and men are treated in the New Jerusalem. Zero. He says that it, Jew, Greek, male, female, slave or free, they're all one in Christ. That's in Galatians. Okay. All generations. He's, he wants to get rid of the enmity between generations. All races. He wants to get rid of all enmity between all races. Like So us getting 50,000... Kind of like-minded, probably mostly white people in a stadium to say, yay, Jesus, that's not the unity that he's talking about, okay? He's actually talking about something that we'd have to deal with all kinds of inner fears and selfishness and uh, delusions and all kinds of stuff going on in here to even have a chance at taking part in the unity that he's describing. Okay? It would take a miracle, is what I'm saying. Because the unity he's inviting us to is the one that we read about in Hebrews 11. Does that sound real attractive? 
No. Sawn in two, Matt. Were you, when you got saved, were you like, "Hey, when do I get sawn in two? Where's the line for sawn in two? <laughs> Jesus said, "If you don't take up that line, you don't take up your cross and follow me. You can't be my disciple." We actually have to repent that that's not what we were saved into. Like we mostly weren't. There's people in the Middle East; they literally got saved into that. Right. Like somebody said to them, "If you say yes, your family's going to reject you. We're probably going to get killed." And people say yes. We just, we live in Babylon. We live in the craziest place where it's like, sign up for Jesus and everything will go great for you. Like, we'll have these great parties. You got lots of money. You probably get a better job. And it's like, that's not the real Jesus. That's not the biblical Jesus. It's not like we're living in some incredibly blessed place that blessed itself right out of the Bible, right? We're living in a delusion, okay? Now, Ephesians 1, 9 to 12, number four. Who's got that? Having made known to us prophecy, the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Yeah, that we who first trusted in Christ. So what, what Paul's saying is, us that are, are writing to you, leading you, church of this century, like the ones of us that first trusted in Christ, we're the first fruits of this reality. So I want you to think for a second, all the people that wrote the Bible, did they get the son in two part? Yeah, all of them did. So all the first believers, they, they were actually united to this. Their reality, if they looked at Western church right now, it would be like, Somebody has sold you something very awful. This is not at all what anybody who wrote this book got. And nor did they expect, nor did they want. They actually decided they believed Jesus about getting a cross, okay? And so, if you're hearing what I'm saying and you're like, who would ever do that? You're right. It was only a miracle of the Holy Spirit's leadership and power that would let a person do that. So when Paul signed up for this, now he was a Pharisee. He was actually he had a great position in, in the country, like he had a lot of comfort, he had a lot of status, people respected him, but what changed his mind so he picked a cross? He's encountered. He encountered God. Yeah. And he was like, I'd rather have the encounter with God than all that stuff. Yeah. So if you have, if you hear these things and you're like, that sounds bad, it's just because you haven't encountered God. So once you encounter God, you're like, there's nothing else worth, I, there's no, where else am I going to go? That's the way Peter said it. He's like, we've seen too much. I, there's nothing else, the world has nothing else for me. Paul said, to live is Christ, to die my gain. So what we are contending for in this room, like the whole point of this building, our, inhabit, our habitation of this building, I can't tell you what the New Hope Baptist, Missionary Baptist Church is all about, but Lighthop is the second church to be here. We're here because we're contending to be touched by God so we can endure trouble in the end times. That's the entire point of this place. We actually are a group of people saying that Hebrews 11 thing, it doesn't sound good, but it's true. And I'm unwilling to do any other unity. I'm unwilling to do any other reality of the gospel. I just know I can't do it. I know I can't do it. This is what Paul teaches about. This is what Peter teaches about. This is the warning to not fall away. Is there such a pull on the church to come into the world? It doesn't have to be that hard. That from the very beginning, the writers of New Testaments were like, don't follow Nicolaitans, is the way Jesus would say it. I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They say you can have me any way you want, but you can't. You can't. I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You actually have to be a person that's like, this 
honestly sounds too hard. Holy Spirit, I need you. I like I need an encounter with you full of power. And if you if you really get to the desperation and truth of that, this is all you're gonna do. This is what you'll do until so who where's a good story in the Bible of like Let's say like 120 people, they were, Jesus was like, you guys are going to do all this stuff. You've got to pick up snakes and that, get hurt, and you're going to cast out demons. And I know you haven't really done a good job of that so far. You're going to heal people, and, and you're going to prophesy, and they're all like, he's not lying, but we can't do that. What's a good story about it? 120 people that had that reality, and then what did they do? Pentecost. What's that? Pentecost. Pentecost. Yeah, they went into the upper room, and they were like, we're waiting for an encounter with God. Did they get one? Did they do all that stuff? Did they endure right through their own process? Yeah. This is the only church there is. This is the only unity there is. This is it. There is no other unity. Okay? So this means the bride of the great cloud of witnesses taken out of Israel and the church. So they're both. So the people that you're reading about Hebrews 11 are mostly taken out of Israel. There's a whole bunch of people called a remnant in Israel. There's at least 144,000 people in Israel that are part of this story, and they might not even know it yet. But God says there's a prophetic remnant in Israel that's going to be just like the bride in the church. A very small number. It's a narrow road. It's a difficult way. Few find it. The road to hell is wide. Most people are going to find the road to hell. They're going to feel great about it all the way until their feet get hot. Like, they're going to feel wonderful, amazing. They're the thing I've said. They tell other people, you're not real Christians because you're not experiencing all this power that we have until their feet get hot. But there is a very small group, narrow road in Israel and in the church that are like, you're not, you're not getting sawn in two. You're not, you're not, there's nobody saying anything bad about you. Everybody kind of saying good stuff about you. Like you're wealthy. Like you think you have no need. You, you don't realize you're poor, blind, wretched, and naked. Right? We have to be that people that discern that. We have to actually be a people that want to see where our flesh is fighting the spirit. We have to be people that are like that. Okay? So this means the bride or the great cloud of witnesses. So when I say bride, I'm saying the people are going to be added to that group in Hebrews 11. Okay? That's what that means. The bride is going to be added to the great cloud of witnesses. That's what they're waiting for. They're not going to be perfected until the bride is added to her. That's the unity that we're going for. Okay, um, And that doesn't just include Israel. It's also people, or just the church is also people in Israel. They're united in night and day prophetic prayer. And this will be the first living example on earth of actual unity. When Jesus comes back, he's going to empty out heaven right now. There's people in spiritual bodies in heaven called the great cloud of witnesses. They're waiting to be perfected. To be perfected means they're waiting for their perfected bodies like Jesus has. When he comes, he's going to bring those people with him. And it says the dead in Christ are raised first, then us who remain. He's going to gather with them a bunch of other people, give them bodies. And those, that group of people called the great cloud of witnesses, they're going to be the very first witnesses on the earth of true unity. The earth is not going to see unity until then. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's it would be very tempting to be like, he's over there, right? He says, when they say, I'm over here, don't believe them. That's not the unity I'm talking about. Or he's over there. That's not the unity I'm talking about. He's, he's at the stadium in Kansas City. That's not the unity I'm talking about. Not that that's bad. It might be. You don't know. You got to know what the Spirit's saying. But the unity that the Bible is describing, that's going to happen when he comes back with the great cloud of witnesses. Because just like they're waiting to be perfected for us, we're waiting to be perfected for them. Do you see what I'm saying? It'd be very easy to get impatient and be like, I don't want to miss the move of God. Impatience will never get you to unity, ever. Because impatience wars against unity. Patience will get you to unity. Will uh, harshness get you to unity? Will gentleness get you to unity? 
Is that easy? Is it easy to be gentle when there's a whole bunch of people with momentum talking about unity? No. It's very difficult to be like, okay, I'm just going to talk to the Holy Spirit, see what the Holy Spirit's saying about this. Right? So all the fruits of the Spirit, peace, gentleness, kindness, self-control. Self-control will get you to unity. Being out of control, just wild, that will never get you to unity. It might be exciting for a meeting, but it will never get you to unity. Okay? Um, to try to do this unity impatiently without this prophetic night and day contending. Now, I say night and day prophetic contending because Jesus said in Luke 18, 7 to 8, he said, will, not, will, my, will God not avenge his own elect who cry to him day and night? I say he will speedily, but will I find faith? He could have said, will I find rest when I return, right? Because that Hebrews 11 passage is like, by faith, then all these people are waiting for us to come into faith. So when Jesus says, well, I find faith, he's actually saying, well, I find people at rest. Well, I find people that are willing to wait for me to avenge them and not try to take it in their own hands to save themselves, okay? Or to create unity or any of these things. It's the same, the same thing. Okay, so to not, to try to do this impatiently, to try and do this unity impatiently in the strength of man, what it does, this is why it's bad. It steals Jesus' honor, pleasure, and blood-bought right to do what man can't. So we might be like, well, I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of like pushing the car along until the engine starts. And he'd be like, no, it's never going to work that way. I'm going to get all the glory. Like I paid all the price. I get all the glory. So this, in this Ephesians passage, it says, having made known to us, that means prophetically God told us something and he told us something about his pleasure. Where else did Jesus say, my joy will be complete if you do these things? John 17, he prayed for his disciples to have unity. And he said, I don't, want, I don't want them taken out of the world. Give them your word. The world will hate them because of your word. But sanctify them, unite them, so that my joy will be complete. This is all about Jesus' joy. Jesus takes joy in orchestrating us into unity. He has no pleasure in our efforts to make unity because it steals his family role, his actual lordship over other people. If I got credit for uniting you, there's some part of you that I will be stealing from Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? He does not want that. And the Father definitely doesn't want that. That's Babylonian. But God, he's going to judge that. And the anti-Babylon is going to get judged harshly. So I want to be very careful to not try to orchestrate stuff for Jesus that he's not asking me to orchestrate. Now, this doesn't mean that we do nothing. Remember, the rest that John the Baptist was in, he did more than anybody in his generation, probably. The rest that David was in, he did more than anyone in his generation. He just did what God told him to. And so he never violated the idea of Jesus getting all the credit. Jesus gets all the credit for what John the Baptist did or what David did. In fact, when Jesus started baptizing more people than John, John was like, he's got the bride. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. That's the way it's supposed to work. He's supposed to get the credit for what I was doing, right? He's supposed to get the credit for what all of us are doing. Um, so we don't want to steal uh, Jesus' honor, pleasure, or blood-brought right to do what man couldn't do in our own hearts. So it can be very tempting to try to unify your heart to Jesus. Can you unify your heart to Jesus? No. If you could, Jesus would have died on the cross. You just found some good people that could unite themselves to God and be like, hey, you guys, let's go. Let's do something. But you can't. You cannot unite yourself to God. You can only tell him where you aren't and ask him to come and unite you. Like, that's the only way it works, okay? So the same is true for your kids. You can't unite your kids to God. It's impossible. And if you try to, you'll steal some of Jesus' glory. So what you're supposed to do 
is let Jesus unite you to him as a witness in all of its weakness and all of its messiness in a really true testimony. Everybody say testimony. And then your kids get a chance to decide if they want that same testimony or not. Because you can't actually make them do it. You can't make people worship. You can't make people love Jesus. Like, and then that goes to our church. So when you get in a church full of people, it's very, I mean, I don't learn this in a book. It's very tempting <clears> to think if we could just get this part of the church to do this or this part to see this. Or if I could just lay it out more clear, then everything would work better. But Jesus is like, that's not the way it works. That doesn't work that way for you. Let me unite you to me as a witness. And then anyone willing will take part in that. And anybody unwilling won't. But what I want actually to go back just for a second because the Holy Spirit highlighted this to me before. Um, to number two, that Hebrews 4, 1 to 2. That first verse, Hebrews 4, 1 says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's not just that I want to enter the rest or my four best friends. We're actually supposed to be concerned that any of us doesn't enter it. Because Jesus is concerned about that. And so I want to make sure I don't actually violate Jesus' leadership of you in his rest with all my good intentions and all my good ideas about how to get you to be a better believer in Jesus. And he'd be like, you're actually not helping them enter into the rest. Yeah. It just um, I was just thinking about using self-control in, uh, in the church and how you have good ideas and pull people into more activity, like being really careful about that and pulling other people out of the rest that the, you know, the, yeah. the Lord and being holy, led by the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Because we love each other. And yeah, and there's some people God actually has over in a corner, and we'd be like, oh, don't be in the corner. Come on over here. And he, God would be like, I'm actually trying to get them to rest. <laughs> you know, but we just, it's, we, if we try to do good without actually listening to the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> we can disrupt a whole bunch of stuff and never even know it. Like, that's the worst part is that delusion is given to people that don't enter into the rest. And so you can just keep getting more and more active, think you're more and more successful. This is going great all the way to hell and dragging people with you. That's what he said to the Pharisees. He said, you scour the earth looking for one follower, then you make them twice as son of hell you are. Like you teach them your same methods to keep people from entering into the rest. That's terrible. That's way worse than if they had never gotten saved. He said, I rather you were cold or hot, this lukewarm, you know, you believe all the promises, but you won't rest. That's the worst. That's the actual absolute worst. It makes me think of running a church like a multi-level marketing business. Yeah. yeah. So only the spirit-led and empowered activities to these ends are clean before God. It's only the things that are spirit-led and empowered. So the temptation is to be like, well, the idea was from the spirit. I'm just doing what the spirit told me to. No, there's a rest. The Spirit told you because He wants to do it. So it's waiting for the Spirit to tell you what to do. That's way different than the Spirit telling you what He wants to do and then you jumping into it. Okay? So only Spirit-led and empowered activities to these ends, to the rest, are clean before God because they are Jesus' direction and power. They don't steal from Jesus' glory. We're supposed to reach, so remember, be diligent to enter into the rest. We're supposed to reach for this diligently. What do I mean? Reach for what? The gifts of the spirit yes. and meaning. Very good. We're supposed to reach for spirit led and empowered. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you read ahead. I was actually talking about what was behind. So, we're supposed to reach to be spirit led and spirit empowered diligently. That means you're reaching to rest because you're like, I'm reaching to hear God. That takes actually setting down, taking some time to listen to the still small voice of God and discern what He's saying. 
And then you're actually reaching for self-control to not try and go do the thing God just told you he wants to do. That's even harder than hearing God. Yes. I mean, this is what got all these people sawn in two. Because no one, no one that wants to see a move of God likes this message. They're like, you're actually in the way of what we think God wants to do. He's given us the resources and the strength to go do it. And you're just a stick in the mud that just wants to sit around and pray. This accusation is going to come against the entire praying church. That's what Satan's going to blast me. The people who, the name of God, the tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So you have to understand, this is going to be warred against fiercely. Because there is a move of unity happening all over the earth right now. There's actually two of them. There's a right and a left move of unity happening right now. Mm. And they're going to become the exact same thing. Because they're both restless. So it's going to be restless against resting. That's The Bible lays out that dichotomy. The fruit, fruitfulness that we rest in the soil and produce stuff. And the tares are just unfruitful strivers spinning their wheels. So the left side wheel spinners and the right side wheel spinners are going to spin each other right into each other's unity. And then what's going to be left are people that are waiting on the Lord. And you want to be a person who's waiting on the Lord. You really do. Because there will be unrest for unrestful people forever. If you want unrest, if you want restlessness, God's got a plan to give it to you completely and fully for the rest of your days. You don't want that. You want to actually be a person that picks rest right now. It's going to be ugly. It's going to, people won't appreciate it. Some people will. If they listen to Jesus, they'll listen to you. If they hated Jesus, they'll hate you. But you have, that's what you signed up for. You signed up for a cross. Okay. Um, so Galatians 5, uh, or Galatians 5, 16, 23, number 5. Can we read that? I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, Selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So if we had two unities, and we had the unity that is counter to Christ, and we look just under the surface. Like on the surface, we'd see a nice little boat full of people crying out, singing the same songs as the people on this side. But if we just look just under the surface, what we would find is uncleanness, lewdness, adultery, fornication, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. Yeah, they, they can keep it together for the worship meeting. But when they get in the car, this is what's just under the surface. Or if you provoke them, you cut them off, or you say something mean, or they feel like you're getting in their way. The, when the flesh is broken, what's underneath is this disease called self. But under the unity that's biblical and agreeing with Jesus, the sawn in two unity, the martyr unity, the deeper you go, the more you find, oh, even provoked, they forgive. They're actually not selfishly ambitious. I can cut them off and they're like, no problem, I love you. I got something else going on in here. There's a satisfaction in God that's happening here. There's an encounter with God that's changed me. I don't want that response. I don't actually, I, that, that flesh response to trouble makes me sick. It's like I can't have that and him at the same time. So I give up that and I, I just follow him. You see what I'm saying? So that's what we were looking for is when I'm provoked, when I fast, when I'm hungry, do I get more edgy? If so... 
that gives me something to pray about. Hey, mm -hmm. Lord, there's some encounter missing here. There's food from heaven available. I'm not fasting encounter with you. I'm actually fasting to get encounter with you. If I'm getting edgy, I'm missing the encounter part. I'm missing the satisfying part. That's the point of fasting. So Jesus said when the bridegroom is taken away, they're going to fast and pray. The unity that he's talking about is unshakable in trouble. It's not driven by momentum. It's not driven by good circumstances. It's driven by an encounter with God that, that is not affected by circumstances at all. Okay. Um, the unity of the Spirit. This is the last thing I'm going to say. Only the Holy Spirit will orchestrate unity. This includes all unity and the end of all enmity. So the Holy Spirit is orchestrating the unity that's going to reorganize the planet. It's going to make the atmosphere good. He's orchestrating the unity that's going to address racism. He's orchestrating the unity right now. That's what he's doing. So when you look at the division in the world, he's dividing it to, to, into unity. He's dividing it from people that rest, from people that don't rest, because the resters are going to be the answer to racism. They're going to be the answer to the gender issues, like the inequality in the world. They're going to be the answer to the climate problems. They're going to be the answer to the lack of peace. And so if you really want to be a part of a, of a government that's going to reign over the earth and renew it for a thousand years, you got to learn to rest right now. If you want that, Stephan and Paul, you guys want to lead us in a response? There's more on page uh, pages three and four of the notes, but it's really more just highlighting kind of some of the same realities, which is we're really contending for the gifts of the Spirit. So the, the, the Bible says if we drink of one Spirit, we uh, become one body. So it's easy to think that when you come to church, and even if you're like a, at a revivaly kind of church where uh, people want the gifts of the Spirit, they don't see that the whole point of the Bible's laying out is that to get the gifts of the Spirit is to... Sorry. We do. You know where you go. To get the gifts of the Spirit... I'll tell you this once I'm done doing this. Sorry. 